And he really loved exploring the boundaries of gender from the very early days of, of his stardom. That's Susan Rogers, the director of the Berkeley Music Perception and Cognition Laboratory, speaking about Prince, who she worked with as a recording engineer in the mid-80s. On this episode, we'll dig into how Prince and other artists have used recording technology to alter the pitch of their voice, often challenging expectations of gender as they do. I'm Sasha Geffen, a music critic, journalist, and author of the book Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary. This is Shattering Gleam, a podcast on music, gender, and the place where they collide. There are a lot of factors that influence how the ear genders a voice. Pitch is a pretty big one. Though all kinds of genders have all kinds of voices, and there's plenty of overlap in vocal pitch, enough testosterone in your system will thicken your vocal cords and make your voice deeper. So deeper voices are associated, in general, with men, higher voices with women. Recording and playback technology makes it possible to alter the pitch of a voice after it's already issued from someone's body. One of the first songs to really take advantage of this was the 1958 novelty single, The Chipmunk Song, by David Seville's cartoon band, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Seville created chipmunk voices by speeding up the tapes onto which his own voice was recorded. It was a hit. The Chipmunk song topped the Billboard Hot 100 and earned Seville three Grammy Awards. If you're curious what pitch shifting sounds like... This is what it sounds like when I'm pitch shifted up. And this is what it sounds like when I'm pitch shifted down. Later on, pitch shifting enabled lots of artists to create new characters on record. The funk band leader George Clinton shifted his voice and his bandmates' voices up and down to give life to an array of characters like Dr. Funkenstein, Lollipop Man, and Sir Nose Devoid of Funk, with his band's Parliament and Funkadelic in the 70s. In the 80s, the musician and performance artist Laurie Anderson used pitch-shifting pedals in live performances to drop her voice down to what she called the voice of authority, a masculine alter ego called Fenway Bergamot. Anderson called the technique of dropping her voice audio drag, challenging listeners to think about gender as something constructed through voice and technology, as well as clothes, hair, and makeup. The singular recording artist Prince also used pitch-shifting techniques to toy with gender, which I'll get into with Susan Rogers in our interview. You can hear his voice shifted up on the 1982 song Automatic from the album 1999. In 1984, the night after catching a funkadelic performance, he wrote the song Erotic City, which dramatically fizzles his voice up into a squeaky high register. In the next few years, he'd dream up an androgynous alter ego named Camille, by recording vocal takes on slowed tape, then speeding them up to get a higher pitch. So with me to talk about the gender dimensions of pitch shifting is Susan Rogers, the director of the Berkeley Music Perception and Cognition Laboratory and a professor who teaches record production and psychoacoustics at Berkeley. Susan is also known as working as a recording engineer with Prince during the 1980s. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So I'd like to begin by asking a few questions that relate to like the the science and psychoacoustics of the recorded voice. 
what what cues does the ear take in when it's like first gendering a voice and and how much of a role does the pitch of the voice itself actually play in that like gendering process the pitch of the voice is essentially the main cue as to the gender identity. So we listen for the fundamental frequency when we're trying to determine uh, the gender of the person speaking to us. So the fundamental frequency of a typical man's voice, because the presence of testosterone uh, lengthens the laryngeal prominence, the Adam's apple. So men have that, the longer vocal tract. And so their fundamental frequency is around 125 hertz. For women, uh, the average is about an octave higher, about 250 hertz. And that gives us a clue as to a speaker's identity, as well as a speaker's health and their mood. And we pick up a lot of cues in the voice. I'm so fascinated by the intervention of like recording technology when it comes to like hearing voices, because it's like in human history, being able to play back a voice from, you know, like a cylinder or a disc, like that's pretty new. We're not really used to having voice without body attached to it. So how does recording and playing back a voice intervene, if it does, in that process of like perceiving and and gendering a voice? Like when there's no body attached, like what what happens? With the... um advent of the digital revolution 20 or so years ago and with digital audio workstations, for the first time in recorded history, we are now enjoying the fruits of a whole new technology, which means that today we make records using sounds that don't actually come from a physical source. I hear on records all the time now the product of sound design, and I can't picture what is making that noise because it doesn't physically exist. It, it, somebody used, a, used a, a, a tool to just modify something inside a computer's hard drive. And it's the same thing with the voice. We, music listeners, seem to be more and more excited about the idea of voices that don't accurately reflect the body, the human being that made that sound. So uh, auto-tune gets uh, more crazy, and there's a, a new device by a fellow named Chris Messina that Kanye West used it on my beautiful dark twisted fantasy on that album and to make voices that sound half human half machine it fits hand in glove with the musical instruments that we create now too with the abstraction just as we enjoy television programs and movies that combine real human beings with fire-breathing dragons and zombies and things that don't actually exist in a seamless integration. So we do on records as well, an unreal or abstract representation of the world. I want to move into your work with Prince because I feel like he was kind of a pivotal figure in this transition from, you know, recording things like replicating acoustics in a room to making something that sounds like quite deliberately artificial that like plays up the artificiality of synthesizers and and other forms of sound making that don't really like correspond to resonating bodies in the same way. So I'm I'm curious there's this alter ego that Prince creates via pitch shifting called Camille. I, I've heard the first time that Prince used pitch shifting to kind of exaggerate the qualities of his voice was on a track called Erotic City that mm. he wrote after seeing Parliament Funkadelic play. Was that the first time that these techniques were used? 
he had been using very speed on the tape machine, the analog tape machine back in the 80s, frequently. When I came to join him in 1983, he used the very speed on the tape machine to shift the timbre of his electric guitar higher. So Erotic City was the first example of making really heavy use of that of that pitch shifting. He used to just call it his half-speed guitar because what you have to do is you bring the speed of the tape machine down by half, record the part, and then you play it back at the regular speed and you get this higher, thinner timbre. So everything's all shifted up an octave. But then later on, he started doing the half-speed with his voice, but that was a little bit too extreme. So you could vary speed with the tape machine in between and just shift your vocal up to be a little bit higher or a a little bit deeper. He always had such an amazing vocal range anyway. He had this amazing falsetto, but he around the time of Camille, that's when he started actually playing with pitch shift to create a specific character. His range already kind of enabled this androgyny, just like on its own, the fact that he was able to have this like amazing, like high, smooth head voice, like right from the very first record, right? Which like he made when he was 19, you know, he mm. and he had already practiced that falsetto so well that it was like very confident, very clear. What do you think led to kind of the exploration of very speed for those androgenizing purposes? What what pushed him in that direction? You know, Prince was more of an artist than we often give him credit for. And that might sound odd to say because, you know, he just, he had, he had a specific artistic identity and he, he, he was well known for being himself with all of his might. But that didn't mean that he didn't like exploration. And he really loved exploring the boundaries of gender. From, from the very early days of, of his stardom, he wanted listeners to guess certain things about him, and that included his race and his his uh, gender and his sexuality. He was really happy with that, as many pure artists would be, as Laurie Anderson was. Just really, just don't tell them, just let them guess. Let them figure it out for themselves. So playing with the tape machine to create a whole new character served him in a number of ways. It served him artistically, just because it was so much fun for him to do. But Prince also really loved competition. And the whole Purple Rain movie was about that, uh, the Battle of the Bands, that kind of thing. Was, was good for his creativity. After the time broke up and uh, Apollonia 6 was no longer around, he needed another band to push against. He needed someone to push against, to be his competition. So he flirted with the idea of creating this character, Camille. Uh, Camille, at the time that he considered the character, was neither male nor female, and was neither alive nor dead. Camille was kind of a ghost at one point. <laughs> so Camille was deliberately designed to be amorphous. How does that neitherness that Camille has figure into the way that her voice sounds on record? Like, how do you capture a vocal character that is both androgynous and also kind of glitching the binary of like alive and dead? He had a certain tone that he liked, and as I recall, there was a fixed amount by which we very sped the tape machine, but for the life of me, I can't remember what that amount was. It might have been somewhere in between an octave or something like that, and he was so facile, he could transpose instrumentally or vocally uh, very quickly. So we 
we had we had a timbre, we had a sound for Camille, but he never saw it through to fruition, in part because it would have been pretty much, well, very difficult in the 80s to reproduce live. Like, sure. I mean, th- there were pitch shifters like the harmonizer and things like that, but in the classic battle of the bands, it's not the same person that gets on stage twice to <laughs> to battle with themselves, and Camille would have necessitated that. How did that rivalry pan out? I know that, you know, at one point, Prince had planned on releasing a Camille album under the name Camille, not publicly associating himself with that. That never came to pass, but was there still kind of a, a generative rivalry between these two characters in, in this universe? For Prince, there was always a rivalry going on with himself. Um, he he was his own biggest rival, and the alter egos that he created, Morris Day in the time, uh, Vanity in Vanity Six, and then later Apollonia, he created them in order to express other aspects of himself, of his own psyche. And in writing songs for these characters, he was expressing aspects of his music that didn't fit the prince that we knew. Yet, the Prince music was only a sliver of the music of his life. The actual music of his life included all these alter egos. He just was so incredibly prolific, there wasn't room for all of these records in his repertoire, and he didn't want the public to think of him as being that fluid. He wanted the public to think of him as being a prince character, but he needed an outlet for these other aspects of his personality. So he just created them. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. We think of Prince, the characters being like so outrageous and abundant. Then there's also more beyond that. So both Prince and Camille are androgynous in in different ways. What gendered contrast was created through the use of pitch shifting? You know, like Camille sounds more feminine, but maybe in this like artificially like heightened way, like in a way that has a different timbre, as you said, from just the use of falsetto. What was kind of discovered or generated in that contrast between their two genders? I am having to speak for him now, so I can't say for sure. This is conjecture. Sure. But I think after creating the character, the next challenge is is what will this character say? Just like being a, a novelist. What words, what are the correct words that I can put in, in the mouth of this character? And as that character emerges, well, you get more and more constrained. In the beginning, you, you, your character can say anything. But as the writing grows, the, the character is now kind of pinned in a little bit. I kind of think that's what happened to the demise of Camille. Around the time I left is when Prince was considering the Black Album, and the Black Album was a selection of songs that originally we had recorded to play at a party, Sheila E.'s birthday party. It was just dance music, and um, he was struggling a little bit with the perception, the public perception, that he had lost his R&B side, he had lost his soul, he lost his blackness. So he thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'll release these songs in the character of Camille, and I'll let everyone know I've still got this black identity. But now we've got a problem because now this collection of songs is speaking for Camille. And he had never originally written these songs 
that way. I think he recognized that for Camille to work, uh, he or she would have to be a more fully formed character and more more thought out. Now, as I understand it, although I wasn't with Prince at the time, so I don't know for sure, but as I understand it, when he was planning his next movie, uh, Graffiti Bridge, Camille was going to be the character, the antagonist in this film. And at this point, Camille, he was writing of Camille as being masculine. But when Camille was first conceived, Camille was feminine. I want to dig a little bit more into the idea of Camille like being neither alive or dead, because I think that there's something really interesting that happens to gender there like in horror movies any portrayal of the undead or like ghosts or hauntings you know it's always a little bit off the way that these Mm. characters these beings are are gendered or even just like possession stories I don't know like I feel like movies like The Exorcist have like really interesting like gender dynamics I'd like to pull back here for a second to talk about the way The Exorcist uses voice in that classic 1973 possession story A 12-year-old girl named Reagan becomes inhabited by a demon. You know she's possessed because she's done up in all this horrible makeup, but also because the voice that comes out of her doesn't sound like it belongs to a 12-year-old girl. It's hoarse and gravelly, and it doesn't sound natural. And I ain't that devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karis. That voice belongs to the actress Mercedes McCambridge, who had three decades of smoking under her belt and took up cigarettes again specifically for the overdubbing of Reagan's lines. McCambridge recorded each line at three different pitches so that they could be spliced together into an uncannily dense sound. Apparently, director William Friedkin originally wanted to use pitch shifting on the voice of Linda Blair, the young actress who played Reagan, and then tried using a male voice actor for the part. Both sounded wrong to him, but McCambridge's corroded androgyny, rendered in three-part harmony, fit the bill. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about the that kind of binary glitching um, between alive and dead that Camille did. Like, was she was this character conceived of as like a a ghost or or just someone who just like completely like departed from the whole idea of humanness as a living organism versus a dead person. I'm apologizing in advance that I can't give you a more direct answer to the question, but I can share with you information that I have, and then we can all kind of imagine what he might have been thinking. So uh, the first bit of information is how and when Camille was conceived of, and the second bit of information includes a very early sketch, a drawing of Camille. And they're absolutely right, by the way, and I'd never thought of that before, the, the genderization of, of ghosts. That's an interesting thing to consider. Anyway, Camille happened when Jesse Johnson, former guitarist from the time, came over to the house uh, to play Prince his new album, his debut album on A&M Records. And the album was entitled Shockadelica. And uh, Prince and Jesse and I were all there at the studio and we, we listened to it and Prince looked at the artwork and he said, I, I really like that word, Shockadelica. But he read the song titles on the back and he says, but where's the song Shockadelica? And Jesse says, there is no song Shockadelica. It's just the name of the album. 
princes. Oh, no, the word is so great. You got to use that word. How could you do that? Everyone, Prince said something that was untrue. He said, everyone knows great albums are titled after the main song on the album. And that's, that's simply not true. But Prince <laughs> believed it should be true. And he and Jesse argued and Jesse took off. Now, Prince and I, at that moment, Prince had me take off the tape, the one, whatever song it was we'd been working on, put up fresh tape. And in an instant, Prince took out the drum machine. He started playing and he wrote and performed a song called Shockadelica. And the lyrics say, the lights go out. The smell of doom is creeping into your living room. Your head's on fire. Your fate is sealed. And the reason is Camille. Shockadelica. <laughs> goes on. He's talking about the shockadelica creeping into your room. And shockadelica doesn't, uh, rather, shockadelica is the feeling, I suppose. But Camille is creeping into your room. And he does not expressly, as I recall anyway, uh, offer us a gender for Camille. And you get the sense, as I recall from the lyrics, Camille's kind of a ghost, this presence in your room. So not long after that, we were out in Los Angeles and we're working on uh, the album that would be Sign of the Times. And um, Prince liked to do his vocals all alone in the control room. So his engineer, me or someone else would set him up, leave the room for an hour or so. He'd do all his lead and background vocals. You come back in, you finish. So I was in the lounge while Prince was doing a vocal at Sunset Sound, and I was with Prince's uh, girlfriend at the time, Susanna Melvoin, and we had notepads, and we were we were sketching, we were drawing, and I drew kind of a, it was kind of like a ghost, but uh, it had X's for the eyes, like the old cartoons used to do, no eyes, just X's, and was, Sue and I were just playing around, but when we were done, uh, we brought our notebooks into the, uh, into the control room, and Prince saw them, and he was really delighted by that drawing of that ghost with the X's for the eyes. I remember him laughing about it and looking at it quite a lot. And I I think it may have figured into his concept of who Camille was. I was a little bit surprised to uh, learn that later on for Graffiti Bridge, Camille had definitely morphed into a, a male or masculine character, but I don't think that was necessarily the origin story of, of Camille. I think Camille originated a slightly more female, but not definite. I'd like to pause for a minute here to reiterate what Susan was saying. Camille started out in an ambiguous space that leaned more toward the feminine. While Camille's self-titled album was never released, the character did end up singing some of Prince's most daring gender explorations, like If I Was Your Girlfriend, from the 1987 album Sign of the Times. In his artificially lifted voice, Prince imagines what it might be like to be girlfriends, in both senses of the word, with the woman he's longing for, to approach intimacy from a place of gender equality, instead of trying to negotiate it across the chasm of heterosexuality. This fantasy comes with a big if, Even though Prince is singing as Camille with his voice feminized, his words are still lodged in a place where femininity isn't completely accessible to him. Notably, there's also a pitched down version of Prince's voice singing back up to his elevated lead vocal at certain points in the song. As an androgynous, supernatural presence, Camille lets Prince trace that unstable longing, acting as a cipher as he dreams of the kind of intimacy that his masculinity seals away from him. I feel like Prince's career kind of glitched a lot of what we consider 
assumptions of evolutionary biology about mm-hmm. like what what women prefer by charging his music with this eroticism that didn't really try to chart difference in that way, right? Like he would make his voice sound very feminine and that was like a very erotic listening experience for women. <laughs> like, Yeah, and it's in- interesting that it would be, but it is. Uh, women have adored male falsetto for a, for a long time. Men mm-hmm. have envied other men who have a really high range, who have a falsetto. The opposite is also true. It's easier for a man to constrict his vocal cords and sound feminine than it is for a woman to lengthen hers and sound masculine. So when we hear a Miley Cyrus, or we hear a Nina Simone, or an Etta James, or a woman with a great, strong, powerful chest voice, that is also attractive to people as well, because the subtext that what the singer is, is advertising to other listeners is, I've got an extra gear that you don't. I've got this full can of whoop-ass, and you don't have it because the singer is actually doing something. It's a bit hard to do. Any other anecdotes that stick out to you? There was one other time when we modified Prince's voice, and he was really happy with it. This was loads of fun. So he recorded a song called Bob George. And Bob George, again, this is the 80s, Bob George was an amalgam of two people he was mad at at the time. Bob was Bob Cavallo, his manager, and George was Nelson George, the the reporter, the writer for Billboard magazine. And Prince was mad at both of them. So he created this character called Bob George. And Prince would often try to pretend to be an old black man and he would deepen his voice and he'd make it all rough and scratchy and he'd be kind of curmudgeonly. And so he did this song where he's this old curmudgeon who's <laughs> who hates this guy called Prince. He really hates this prince. His name is Bob George, and he's mad at his girlfriend, and he hates Prince, and he's in a really bad mood. Anyway, he had to take a break. He he left the studio for a little bit, and while I was waiting for him to come back, I took the pitch shifter that we had in the room, a device called the Publison, and I pitch shifted Prince's voice down an octave rather than up. (laughs) And Prince came back and heard that, and really loved it. He really, really, really thought it was funny. That was the version that we printed. It never made it onto an album, but um, playing with the timbre of his voice, well, you know, it was kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He knew that everyone knew that was him singing, but he loved becoming another character so that he could express other aspects of himself without any fear that it would hurt the Prince character. And others have done this. We know that Garth Brooks created Chris Gaines. Artists sometimes say, no, there's part of me is this other thing, and I want to express that, but I need to do it in a way that's distant from myself so that I don't hurt the character I have built out. So sometimes the artificial identity is your only identity. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're famous. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like what you have to play with. It's just this like mass perception of a person that comes from you, but isn't really you. And I feel like that distance can be really interesting if like the artist like takes it as material. It's incredibly interesting. When you listen to a pop song or rock song or soul or hip hop or whatever, and you hear the word you, it's never clear who it's about, or rarely is it clear. You could be you. 
So it has been said that when we listen to music, we don the clothing of the person singing to us. We get to try on another identity. We get to experience an identity swap. We get to be the singer or we get to be the person who's being sung to. And that feels good. And it's something that all of us seek out. We, we seek um, to listen to a variety of artists because inside us, we're a variety of people. And, and by listening to music, it gives us three minutes to feel what it's like to be someone else. I think Prince was well aware of that. Susan, thank you so much for for joining me today. I'm so glad we got to chat. I'm so grateful that you shared your your stories and your expertise. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks. Thank you, Sasha. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. That was Susan Rogers, Prince's recording engineer and the director of the Berkeley Music Perception and Cognition Laboratory. There's a book I keep coming back to called The Race of Sound by Nina Sun Eidsheim. In it, Eidsheim poses the idea that the phenomenon we call voice doesn't begin in the throat of the singer, but in the ear of the listener. What you think of as someone else's voice is actually something you are doing, not just something you're receiving. When the sound waves of a pitch-shifted voice hit your ear, you reconstruct the idea of their source. Because they sound different from the sound waves generated by someone singing in the same room as you, you might be tempted to call them fake or artificial. What might happen if you lifted away from that binary of fake versus real, much in the same way that Prince's alter ego Camille confounded binaries of male and female, alive and dead? What if you took it all in as just different shades of voice? Thanks for listening. You can find Shattering Gleam on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening now. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. Special thanks to all those who make this podcast a reality. Kelsey Albright, Sarah Bentley, Roger Coletti, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Emily Dougherty, Rachel Elias, Melissa Hicks, Mia Jung, Sade Robinson, Anthony Spera, Mike Spinella, Sam Termine, Teddy Zambetti, Chris Watherspoon, and of course, me, your host, Sasha Geffen. Shattering Gleam is a Sirius XM production. Sirius XM Podcasts.